Now the reading from the word. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So that they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on, on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken, broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. I'd like you to notice, by the way, we, we are trying a few different things. Um, Latoria and I, she is our new worship leader, uh, are trying to figure out how to integrate her worship style with our worship style. So we're in the process of experimentation. We're going to be trying a few different things. From service to service, you will see changes as we uh, try different things, and hopefully we will find the balance between us, and uh, I look forward to that. Um, so this is an interim. So you just heard from Mark's Gospel. We've been looking since the summer at Mark's Gospel, which is based on the record of Peter, the Apostle, and is the shortest and most vivid of the Gospels. Peter just wrote down what, or spoke, and it was written down, what he saw. He was an illiterate man, uneducated. He didn't speculate about Jesus. He just told us what Jesus did and how he did it. And so it's a great place to start to get to know who Jesus was. It's unfiltered. There's no attempt at explanation. We've seen Jesus introduce himself. He begins to teach in the synagogue. He begins to teach to crowds. He heals people. He demonstrates through miracles that he has authority over nature and over sickness over spirits. He goes uh, out of Israel to the land of the Gentiles to show he is Lord, not just of the Jews, but Lord of all. And he begins to grow around him a group of disciples and followers. If you look at the first verse here, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. If you remember, Jesus sent them out two by two in his name to witness to who Jesus is and was, what he did to, in Jesus' name, heal people, in Jesus' name to minister to the needs of Israel. And now they return. They've been sent out by him, and here they return to report what has just happened. And notice, they're no longer disciples. They're now the apostles. 
This is a Greek word that means really a commissioned person, an ambassador or a messenger or a delegate, somebody who is commissioned and given an authority, given a power, and sent out by somebody as a representative. Essentially, the disciples are learning to be Christ-like. They're learning to be like him, to have his authority and his power, and Jesus is teaching them. If you remember, we looked at this. When Jesus called them, they were just simple, uneducated men, mainly fishermen, but just workers. There was a tax collector. There were a few different uh, disciples, but there was nothing special about them. They were not leaders. They were not part of the elite. They were taken from the bottom of society. And his first invitation, as we saw, Jesus said, come and see. Just check me out. See what I'm about. See what I do. See what I say. See what I spend my time doing. But then he gives a second invitation. Come and follow. The fishermen lay down their nets and their boats. They change the direction of their life, and they begin to follow him. Pick up his agenda, pick up his mission, his ministry. And then there's a final invitation, and this is what is happening to them right now in this passage. Come and be. So first of all, come and see, just show up. See what's happening. Come and follow. Begin to change the direction of your life and make me the center of your life. Follow me. And then come and be. Be like me. Be with me. Become a shepherd like me. Take up my ministry. Take up my purpose. And that's what's happening here. Notice they have no innate talents. These aren't supermen. They aren't some glorious representatives of humanity who are specially picked because they're so talented. These are very ordinary people, uneducated people, who Jesus invites to become like him. Verse 31. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. They are becoming ministers, the disciples, now apostles. They are becoming shepherds, but Jesus is still their shepherd. He's the, still the one that's taking care of them and them, their needs. By the way, if you take Jesus' invitation seriously, if you do begin to follow him, if you do take up his cause, if you begin to minister in his name, I'd advise you to pay attention to this passage right here. Ministry is hard. When I first began as an intern in Manhattan, my boss said to me and all the other leaders, you are going to burn out. It's hard enough to live by yourself in the city, to take care of yourself, just to exist. Once you start taking care of other people and their needs, they can easily overwhelm you. You need two things. You need habits of rest and restoration. You need to build into your life ways of renewing yourself. Don't wait until you collapse. It needs to start right at the beginning. 
And secondly, your resource is Jesus. Notice what he says. Come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. This is the definition of retreat. Coming back from the front lines of ministry, retreating to a place where you can rest that is quiet with Jesus. That's how you renew yourself. I once had a pastor at a conference. He said he was ministering and he was exhausted. And one Sunday he was, he was getting ready to write the sermon. And he did his, his usual preparation and he got to the place where he had to start writing. And he said there was nothing there. It was like he had dropped a bucket down a well and it hit the bottom. There was no water left. He had emptied himself. He had nothing literally to say. And it was he said it was the worst moment of his life. Unless you are renewing yourself with Christ, unless you're rela- you have a relationship with him daily, you are going to empty yourself. Ministry is not about your talents. It is about you being a pipeline to Christ. The Spirit flows through you. And if you don't keep yourself connected to the source, with Christ like a living spring in the very center of who you are, you're going to be sucked dry. There are many needs in the world. There are many desperate people. They will come to you, and they will drain you unless you stay connected with Christ. By the way, the habit of depending on Christ, of needing Christ, of spending time with him, that that habit is the basis of Christian life. I mean, think of the disciples. They followed him everywhere. They were with him all the time. In fact, I would say the Christian ministry is learning to depend on Jesus and having your faith grown and restored as he constantly comes through. That's ministry, sharing what you receive from him. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So the uh, disciples, the apostles, they still had their fishing boats. And so this is on the shores of Galilee. And they get on the boats and they are going away on their retreat, and the people, they recognize them now. The apostles have become a draw, and they come from all the towns, and presumably they're watching the apostles out on the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and they're seeing where they're going to land, and they run there. And what does Jesus say? They were like, shepherd, they were like sheep without a shepherd. The main reason that Jesus came into the world was to save, that is, to find and bring back together God's people. And one of the most um, powerful images that is throughout the Bible is this idea of being a shepherd, of Jesus being a shepherd and of people who minister in his name being shepherds. It's the root of the word pastor, from pastoral, to take care of a flock of animals. And it is the primary image used in the Bible of God's care for his people. 
That is what the disciples are being taught. That is what it's going to mean for them to be apostles. To be, like Jesus, a shepherd. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Notice, they're no longer just passive followers. They're learning to be shepherds. They're learning to be compassionate. They're learning to recognize the needs of the people following Jesus. But all they have here is the wisdom of the world. The people are hungry. Let's, we don't have enough money. Let's send them away. They're being practical. They're being reasonable. They're responding to the situation as any compassionate person in the world would respond. But Jesus wants more. Remember what he's doing. He's not only calling them. He's not only changing the direction of their life. He is teaching them to be like him. And so, like him, he is teaching them to depend in faith on the Father for provision. So what does he do? He challenges them. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Don't worry about money. Don't send them away. You, right now, feed them. By the way, if you see echoes of the Lord's Supper here, you'll see that in a moment. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it them to eat? Once again, they're responding practically. But then Jesus shows them another way. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Don't go looking for money. Don't send them away. What do you have right now, where you are, to meet the needs of these people? Go find out. Take an inventory. Look and see what you've got. And then bring it to God. During my wandering years, when I, when I was a, a teenager, it happened that I found myself in Morocco, in the Atlas Mountains, on a train to Marrakesh, as you do. And it was a miserable trip, days through the mountains, no green, just sun and rocks and sand, a few scorny trees, hot, dusty, and uncomfortable. But I had an amazing conversation on that train that I've always remembered. There was an American, a young American, he was a Peace Corps volunteer, but he'd also been sponsored by his church. And he was coming towards the end of his time there. He had been there for two years in these miserable mountains. And he told us, there was a group of us, he told us this story. When he first showed up, there was nothing. He barely spoke the language. He had a quick course. He packed a rucksack. He didn't really know what to expect. And he had been sent to this remote village in the mountains, the Atlas Mountains, which are a desolate bunch of mountains in Morocco. Nothing there. Very little green, very little water. It's uh, just shades of gray and brown when you travel through it. And he's posted to this village, and there's nothing there. These gray mud huts, many without uh, glass in the windows. They had wood shutters, he said, when it got cold or windy, and the smoke from the fire would make them almost uninhabitable. 
And there he was. They gave him a hut. Welcome. Here you are. Put his rucksack down in this hut. Had a bare bed, no mattress on it. There he was. What is he going to do? Why was he there? Everyone in the village is looking to him. You know, this amazing American has shown up. He's going to do miracles. He's just going to change the world. He's a gift from God. And for the first few weeks and months, he said he had no idea what to do. He just walked from village to village. He had no idea why he was there, what he should do, what it was all about. He cried a lot. He spent a lot of time writing letters home. And uh, it was just a miserable, miserable situation. So his parents, back in America, in the church, they're trying to figure out how to help him, what to do about this. So they started sending him care packages. And these care packages would show up in the village, great acclaim, they never got them before. And he'd start sharing stuff. And they started writing letters back saying how amazing the people were responding to these and starting asking for specific things that they needed. And the church back in America started talking to other churches and they started sending things. And these care packages turned into not just packages, but crates and then delivery trucks. And after two years in that village, he, through these donations and through the help of the villagers, had built a library fully stocked with books for the kids. In fact, all kinds of books, the only library in that entire area, so the village became a center for education. And they built not a hospital, but a clinic, which is very basic things, bandages and antiseptic and uh, just things that you and I would pick up from the pharmacy. But there was nothing like it in that whole area. And so this kid, and he was a kid, without anything, without any resources, because of his connection with the church back in the States, discovered that he was the source of amazing things for this village. And so there he was, two years in, completely confident. The callow youth had become a, a minister, even a shepherd. He was now looking at the other villages and how to help them. And he would leave there a functioning clinic and the only library in that whole area. That's what faith looks like. We are not the sum total of our material possessions because we, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, if you're ministering Jesus' name, have a relationship with the creator of the universe. You know, God could just say to every pastor or ministry leader, just play the lottery this week and I'll just make sure you win. He could fund everything in the world just by giving money. But he's after more than that. He is teaching his disciples and his followers that through faith we have access to riches we can't imagine. And as we begin to trust and believe, those riches will fill our life and the life around us, the people that we minister to. That's what this encounter is all about. Jesus is teaching his disciples, teaching his apostles, that their riches, their resource, is God. Not their own talents, not their own material possessions, not their own money. They're learning to depend on their father, 
as Jesus depended on his father. And that is what is going to enable them to be shepherds, like he was a shepherd. Jesus saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's the human condition without God. And that's what Jesus came to restore. You know, there's something about shepherds in the Bible. Abraham, the man of faith, the one who began the process of the redemption of the world, he was a shepherd. Moses, who led Israel out of slavery and through the desert to the promised land, for 40 years he was a shepherd. David, king of Israel, what was his training to be king? He was a shepherd. Spent his time on the hillsides singing to God and worshiping him. Is this just a story? As you listen to what I'm saying as we read this together, are we just reading a story? Or are you hearing a call? Are you hearing Jesus speak to you and invite you not just to come and see, not just to begin to follow him, but to grow and be like him, to become a shepherd? to begin to minister in his name to the hurts of the world, to the people who are lost, to the people who are frightened, whose lives are filled with darkness and ugliness. Do you hear that in this story? He's not just speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to them and through them to his future church. What does it mean to be a shepherd? By the way, Every one of you potentially is. When Jesus talks about himself as a shepherd, he says, his sheep hear his voice. Who hears your voice? Your children, your family, your employees, your co-workers, your neighbors. Whoever it is, those people are your potential flock. It has to start with people who listen to you, who hear your voice, who pay attention to you. And whoever those, that group is, maybe it's just one person, that's your ministry if you choose to pick it up. And what does a shepherd do? The first thing a shepherd does is keep the flock together. That is, protect the flock, the sheep, from external attack. You don't let outsiders set the agenda. You don't let them come in and scatter the sheep. That means no physical attacks. Keep them safe physically. Don't let bad ideas come in. Don't let you or your family or whatever group this is begin to listen to voices that you know are wrong. You know, when you create a small group, a uh, fellowship group, a ministry group in the church, you always fill it with the word of God. Because that is the agenda. Think of your family. What do you think your family, your spouse, your children, what ideas do you want their lives to be about? You potentially can set the agenda. If they listen to your voice, 
and you are telling them about Jesus, you are instilling kingdom values, Christian values, they will pay attention. It will shape and direct the future of their life. So the shepherd prevents external attack, external ideas from reshaping the flock, but also prevents internal dissension, conflict. Conflict resolution and showing the people that you care about how to disagree without hurting or splitting up from each other, that's a skill. You know, we stood up earlier and shared our peace with each other. It's the peace we get from Christ because Christ has reconciled us to God and to each other. That peace is essential if you're going to keep your flock, whoever they are, together. By the way, all these skills transfer out of the church to workplace, to institutions, to schools, to ministries of all kinds. And finally, you make sure the flock is feeding on the good pasture and the good clean water. The word of God. Relationship with Christ. Christian worship. Prayer. That they are growing through his teaching, through his word. This is the essence of Christian ministry. Now, if, if you read ahead in the Gospels, you know what happens to Jesus. He gets crucified. And on the way, all his disciples betray him. Even Peter, who's going to be the rock on which he builds the church. And after Jesus' resurrection, he speaks to Peter. And he says this. At this point, Peter is completely devastated. The absolute opposite of an empowered minister. He's betrayed Christ. He's run away. He's been revealed as a coward. And Jesus said this. Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said it to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. To be a shepherd, to take care of a flock, a group of people, to protect them, to help them grow together, to keep them focused on Christ. That's what Christian ministry is all about. That's what the Christian call is all about. Now, I don't know how you think about this. It's kind of, maybe it's an abstract. The idea of being a shepherd, it seems so, I don't know, 13th century or something. Is it powerful? Is it real? Is this a good way of organizing and thinking about your life? Well, it's funny. Long before I was a Christian, I had this image. It was embedded in me. In England, it's strange. England is not a particularly Christian country, but the queen is head of the Christian church in England. And though by royal decree, 
every Christian, every uh, student in England, everyone, is required to do two things. They can do a lot of other things as well, but they're required to have physical education and religious education. And so I was being taught about Jesus when I was a little kid. Of course, the teachers are not Christians, and so they just teach morality and whatever the latest fashion is. But I always remember one lesson. I don't know how old I was, very young, six, seven, eight, something like that. And the teacher told this parable. It's Jesus' parable, and it's Jesus teaching his disciples. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. What a lovely story. Except the, uh, the teacher did not like that story. It upset her greatly. Uh, she wasn't a Christian, but she was a responsible teacher, and this story made no sense to her. What would happen to a teacher who loses a kid and then abandons 99 kids in the wilderness to go searching for the lost one? I mean, think. If you're a teacher, you'll probably just get fired if you lose one kid. But if you lose 99, you'll probably go to jail or get lynched. I mean, that is not good math. Lo abandoning 99 to go after one lost sheep. It makes no sense. And she could not make sense of it. It upset her. But I was a kid, and I loved this story. This is long before I was a Christian. I could imagine myself lost out there in the woods, dark and alone. And to my young mind, a good teacher or a good shepherd would drop everything and everybody else for me. Who cares about those 99 saved kids? I'm alone in the woods. I want to be saved. And a good teacher would come find me. It made perfect sense to me, and it was very reassuring. Now, my selfishness loved the story. Her responsibility did not. How to make sense of that story? The math of heaven is different. The only way this makes sense is if two things are true. One, each sheep, each child, each person is of infinite value to God. And if you're of infinite value, it doesn't mean, matter if you have one infinity or a hundred infinities, they're still infinite. And two, that God himself is infinite. He's not a harried teacher who has to give partially himself to all the different uh, kids in the class. An unruly classroom can turn one teacher into a, a mad person. You can't give yourself to every child. You have to split yourself up. But if God is infinite, then he can give full attention to everybody. He can handle anything that you can throw at him, and he can give you much more than you can handle of himself. If God is infinite, there is always more of him. And your relationship with him will be his full attention. You know, sometimes you'll hear on TV, TV commentators mocking athletes who pray for a sports event or pray for a win. And, and they say things like, you know, God's got more important things to do 
Don't worry about a basketball game or a baseball game or a football game. That's not true. No, he doesn't. God is worried about every detail of your life. As if you were the only person. As if you were the one. And he cares about everything that's important to you. He doesn't worry about the rest of the world. He's God. It's under his control. There is nothing for him to worry about. And so his only concern is you. You personally. He wants a relationship with you, and he cares about every detail of your right life because you are the most important thing in the universe to him. Just you. Because he's infinite. And that's how we can make sense of Jesus. If we hear his voice, if he becomes our shepherd, we are not just part of a big gang or a big flock. We can have this personal relationship, this personal trust. He will be with you and with me forever. And we will get from him as much as we can possibly have handle because he's infinite. And the good shepherd says this. I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus speaking. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For you and for me. You can see that there's a, a through line here. Every person that gets involved with Christianity is ministered to by somebody, some kind of pastor, some kind of leader, some kind of figure in the church. And that person is ministered to or shepherded by whoever they listen to. And that person is shepherded by whoever they listen to. And it goes up the line until you reach the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, Jesus. It's why when David was up in the mountains as a shepherd thinking about Jesus long before he knew he was going to be king he wrote Psalm 23 he already had everything he needed to be a king because he already had this extraordinary relationship with God cultivated on the mountains by himself as a shepherd it's Psalm 23 and I'm going to finish with this The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. There's nothing that we can possibly need beyond him. Nothing that we could possibly ask for. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The good food. He leads me besides quiet waters. The good safe water. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. If you spend time with him, he will refresh you. He will renew you. He will shepherd you. And if you follow him, you can be, you can be sure that he's going to be faithful and he's going to bring you home. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We are on a journey. There are many voices in this world, many ways of living in this world. 
But Jesus promises, if you listen to me, and if you continue to follow me, I will bring you even through death. And you will be completely safe, you and those you love. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's the promise. If you listen and you follow. So I'm going to read this again. And I'm going to leave gaps for you to fill in. If you don't have this in your life, ask Christ for him to put it in your life. If there's something in your life who are blocking you in these different elements, this is the time to ask God to intervene. If you've never considered this, thank God for what is revealed in this psalm. I'll read it through slowly, pray in the gaps, and then we'll end. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. We thank you 
that you care for us, that you'll pay any price to save us, that you are leading us home. We thank you in your name, in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So.